like kings. In the ancient world, would put statues of themselves in lands of distant conquest to let everyone know who was king. So God, and the Hebrew word for reflect, or Hebrew word for image of God, is the same word for statue in, in, in Hebrew. We were created, this is why God says, you don't need to make statues, don't make images of me, I don't need them, I have you. When people want to know who's in charge and how, who I am and how I, how I reign and rule, they should be able to see it in you, my people. But as we discovered, when sin and, and brokenness enter our world and our story, we go from being reflectors of God and, and image bearers to a people bent more on making a name for ourselves and making ourselves out to be the kings and rulers, choosing, as was the original temptation, to be like God rather than to reflect him. Our story says this, in the midst of this spiral into decadence and brokenness, God enters in and he calls to himself a people, first through a man named Abraham and then through a nation called Israel. And God said to this nation, we're going to try it again. I'm going to make you, if you'll follow my commands, I'm going to make you an unusual people because you will stand out amongst all of the other nations and when they begin to see your peace and your prosperity and your hope, then they won't have a king to attribute it to because Israel will have no king. You won't need one. I'm leading you. Then people will look and go, it must be their God. That was the hope, that their peace and prosperity would reflect the glory and grandeur of God. But Israel got messed up and greedy, and they wanted a king just like all the other people. And so they walked away, not just from God's commands, but from himself, God himself. And this is perhaps seen no, nowhere better but than in the period of kings, where Israel disobeys God and, and says, no, we'd rather have a king than you, God. And they raise up kings to lead them. And for the most part, just as God had predicted, it turns into a horrible mess. And, and that's where we find ourselves this morning with the story of Daniel. And this story has deep... I, See, I, I'm going to talk to you about history in a minute, and I hate even bringing up the story of Daniel sometimes because if, you're, if you've been around the church or even if it's your first time here, you're like, oh, Daniel, lion's den, children's story. It's just, it's so, it's so, it's so not, but I, I want you to see that in a minute. This story has deep and profound meaning for all of us here today because it's, it's a story of what faith looks like for people who are trying to follow God, how they live that way in a foreign land. In a sense, it's kind of like lessons from the lion's den. So check this out. In the third year, now here's, here's Israel has chosen to be run by kings, not by God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Why? Because Jehoiakim was an evil king. He was... He was horrendous. He wasn't doing what God had commanded him to do, and so God participates in this and hands Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These, King Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Quick history lesson for you, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Babylon is the most ancient, or excuse me, most famous city from ancient Mesopotamia, which, whose ruins lie in modern-day Iraq, about 59 miles outside of Baghdad. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon, and Babylon was a gigantic empire, was Babylon's most famous and ruthless ruler. 
He is, for some Iraqis, the George Washington, in a sense, of their country. So much so, and here's where this is interesting, that our old friend Saddam Hussein, that most of us uh, heard of over the last bunch of years, Saddam Hussein fancied himself a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. Restoring, he believed it was his job to restore the glory of ancient Babylon. And so he would try to get the people to see that he was the modern-day equivalent of this ancient king. The first thing he did is he would, he would mint coins with his face on them and Nebuchadnezzar's face. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, like most of the, the great ancient rulers, he was a kingdom builder. He was throwing up buildings everywhere. In fact, I think uh, if you go to Iraq today, I believe that ancient Babylon might be the largest archaeological site in the world. And as they've recovered a, a ton of the building, go online, it's really fascinating, what they found all over the ruins are bricks. Thousands and thousands and thousands of bricks, all of which have stamped onto them something about Nebuchadnezzar, his rule, his reign, and his family. Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to know who was in charge, and he was going to do it by force, by power, and by bricks. Now, Saddam Hussein comes along 2,500 years later, and using the same script on the bricks, he writes in the era of President Saddam, he's rebuilding the walls of Babylon. In the era of President Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, God preserve him who rebuilt Babylon as a protector of the great Iraq and the builder of civilization. Now, you might be going, well, that's great, I didn't come for a history lesson, why are you telling me this? One is because I want to give you some context for, for this, but the second is because I want you to understand that what we're discussing here is not a childish story. You know, I know that, you know, you saw the, the, the Daniel Lion King movie when you were a kid. I know there was a VeggieTales thing about this, Shad, I don't remember their names. Well, you know the full names, but they had, they had short But anyway, I want you to understand that this is a historically documented story. It really happened. In fact, it, it, it's kind of still a modern-day thing. Now, this is, uh, when, when Babylon, who was conquering all these kingdoms, when they would conquer these kingdoms, they had this brilliant plan about how to expand their empire. Uh, this is what they would do. Uh, jump into the story. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So they would go into a town, and they would go and get certain people to bring back into Babylon. Let's look at who they got here. They would go in, and they would get young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, I mean, they were looking for the young John Eismans of their day, is my, what I really, as I, I reflected on it myself, to bring people just like me. Actually, I would have been left behind. Uh, you don't have to need to email me. I know, I would have been left behind. But they bring all of the good-looking, influential, wealthy, strong, healthy, prosperous people into Babylon. Instead of killing them, stringing them up, making everybody afraid, they had a different agenda and a different plan. Here's what they would do. This was, was Ashpenaz's job. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned all of these handsome men captured a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were... They were proudly, for most of them, entered into the service of the king. So they would take the best and the brightest and the beautiful, and they would deeply immerse them into the culture of Babylon. 
thereby very slowly, incrementally, week after week, month after month, meal after meal, year after year, start to weed out of the people their stories, their cultures, and replace them with Babylonian thought and Babylonian culture. In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar realizes, we could strip away the uniqueness of this people and make them just like everyone else. Now, most people who were put into this program would have loved it. You're one of the young, rich elites, maybe the son of royalty, and your nation just got conquered. You're thinking you're going to get your head cut off, but instead, you are trotted back to Babylon, and you are given the king's wine, the king's food, and put into a cushy king's job. It, Babylon actually would take some of these people, and it almost, almost like um, we get an inoculation, they would take some of these folks and send them back to their country. And so that these influencers begin to influence Babylonian thought out into their existing cultures. Back to the story. Among those who were chosen uh, to do this uh, were, um, from Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. This is so cool. I mean, it's so, so cool in a sense. It's so fascinating because the indoctrination begins almost immediately. Gentlemen, welcome to Babylon. You shall no longer be Daniel. You shall be Belshazzar. They take away their Hebrew names and they change them to Babylonian names. For example, I was just reading it because it struck me as interesting. Mishael, uh, who meant in Hebrew, Mishael meant who is like God. They changed his name to Meshach, which meant who is like Ahu, or Ahu, who is in a Babylonian god. Same with Daniel, whose name got tied to another Babylonian god, Bel. That's where Belshazzar came from. So what's interesting is here, you have lots and lots of young Hebrew men, bright and beautiful, relocated to Babylon, but we only know four other stories. Because they did something different from everybody else that got taken. Something they realized that I think you and I need to. That once they change their names and they put on different robes and they cut their hair, they realized it was only a matter of time until it changed everything about them. That if this keeps going, I'm no longer going to be who I was created to be. I'm going to be a Babylonian. See, they, they had been brought up one way as children of the Most High God, but they were slowly being weaned from how they had been raised and what they believed, what was right, what was wrong. I've seen this experience in modern-day life. It's called sending your kids off to high school. Right? If you've raised, if you've been, if you've walked through those days, at some point there is some kind of tension and you have uttered the words, I didn't raise you like this. It's the frog in the water principle. Just slowly turn the heat up. It's the truth that my kids hate when I reminded them of it when they were young, but now that they're older, they realize how powerful the truth is, and Nebuchadnezzar figured it out centuries ago. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. See, Daniel and his friends, it appears only them, realize what was beginning to happen to them. That if they, didn't, if they didn't do anything, they would no longer be Jews, the children of God, the reflection of God, but Babylonians. And they did something, here's the story, they did something over and over and over in this story that is worth discussing. 
that is a principle for how you and I can live in a world that just seems, I don't know, counter-cultural. Here's what Daniel did. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and ask the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. Another version put it this way. Daniel made up his mind. Daniel, at some point, at this point, actually, the point of eating the king's meat. Now, why would he be upset about eating the king's meat? Well, remember, God was trying to create a unique people, Israel, that would reflect to, Israel, to all the world what he was like when he ruled. So he wanted Israel to be unique. Not just in the fact that it didn't have a king, but he gave them dietary laws and clothing restrictions. Every once in a while, somebody will bring something up out of one of these books and say, look at this, the silliness of the Judeo-Christian background. Well, that's because God was trying to make a unique people and he wanted them to stand out. And so he gave them a lot of these laws so they would look different and be unique. So people would look at them and go, oh, they're different and I see how they're prospering, and I see what their God is doing, and, and that people might turn to God. And, and so one of these things was food laws. There were a lot of food laws. And so Daniel's looking at this food going, this is not kosher. I can't eat this. So God's plan was that when people saw his people rightly and wonderfully and re reflecting who he was, that they would return to him. So when it comes to the food that, that, that Daniel, that's his breaking point. That's where he decides to draw a line. That's where he goes, if I do this, now I'm going to be just like everybody else. How could I possibly reflect to the Babylonians who God is? This is the place where I'm drawing a line. You see, he made up his mind. Which leads to this morning's first question for you. Where is your line? Do you know? Is there one? In a culture that is push, 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 just pushing you and our kids along, where's your line? Put another way, as I read it this week, have you made your mind up about anything? Anything? Have you made your mind up about moral issues, ethical issues, spiritual issues? Or, or is it all just kind of gray and I'll deal with it when I have to? In any area of life, have you made up your mind that regardless of the consequences, you are not going to compromise? See, I, I mean, where are the lines? Because God is still looking to call to himself a people who will not be just like everybody else. Because in many ways, Israel wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted a king. I feel like we still do the same thing. I want to be like everybody else in the way I live my life. I don't want to be unusual. And God's still looking for somebody to be willing to be unusual, to reflect to a world who he is and how he loves. I mean, would you be willing to dress a little differently? Eat a little differently? Act a little differently? To be unusual so that people might notice as they reflect God to the culture and in noticing them the way they live as strangers in an alien land, maybe somebody might be moved towards God. See, for Daniel and his friends, and for you and I, I get it. These things are not easy. Daniel is taking a stand here on the diet issue. That's his line. And he knows it's likely going to cost him something. I mean, he's not dumb. For Daniel, he probably figures it's going to be his life. But you and I compromise over so much less, or at least I do. Maybe you're a better person than I. You probably are a better person than I. But we sell our integrity out for cents on the dollar. Let me tell you what I mean. See, this is the problem with being a pastor. You write these things, and then you have to go live. 
and you're reminded that you struggle with them. So for example, this week, um, my daughter had a track meet and she had sent me a grocery list of things that I needed to bring to her track meet. That's a whole nother lesson for another day, but she sent me to the grocery store to bring all this stuff. So I get there and of course, as usual, I'm running late and I'm getting all of these items. Now, I finally got them, I'm running late, I'm gonna miss her race, and so I made the classic mistake that we all make when we go into ShopRite in a rut, in a, and we're in a rush. Do you know what mistake I made? The self-checkout aisle, I heard one of you say it. It's a bad move every single time, right? And so I'm in a rush, I'm, I'm banging through the things, every, boop, 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 boop. Look up, it's a bagel. It's like a $1.50 bagel. And this machine goes, because they had special made it and wrapped it for me, the machine goes, no such item. So I'm looking around, Nobody. So the voice starts going in my head. Just put it in the bag. <laughs> right? Like, you've, have you heard that voice? Right? And I, like all the justification, well, it's their fault. They didn't put a price on it. It's only $1.50. They made more than that already on me, so they really still would be up. And so I start walking around, I'm trying to find somebody, nobody will help me. Everybody I ask, I'm like, I can't get this to scan. Oh yeah, you just gotta scan it. Okay, thank you for your wisdom, sir, it doesn't scan, you know. And the voice is just going, you're gonna miss the race. You're an idiot, it's a dollar. Just leave a dollar on the counter, walk out, you're gonna miss the race. And so finally, this woman comes by and I said, hey, could you really help me? I can't get this to, to scan. She goes, we just need to run it over the thing. I said, I know, it doesn't scan. And so she came and she found a code and all the rest. And so, I, here's my story. In that moment, my integrity, I was willing to give up my integrity for $1.50. I, I was selling it for a buck fifty. But it gets worse because I am who I am. And so I took my bagel and my various other sundry um, groceries to the track meet where it was a miserable day, cold, dreary, rainy. You, you should be paid to go to a track meet like this, <laughs> not to have to go into a track meet like this. Who pays to go into something like this? So that was my mindset when I approached the track and was stopped by the authorities over the track who told me I needed $5 to enter. Well, I didn't have $5. I didn't have any cash. I offered them a bagel. They weren't interested in the compromise position. And so uh, I said to the woman at the gate, I explained my situation, uh, you know, and you feel like such a loser. I'm like, I don't have five bucks, I can't get out. I'm gonna miss my kid's race, the bagel, you know, the whole thing. She goes, she goes, just go, just go, just go. I said, no, no, no I, just, I don't wanna do that. I'll, I'll give you the five bucks. My wife's coming, she'll have money, and then I'll come back and pay you. And she goes, all right, that's great. I said, well, I'll give, you want me to leave you my driver's license so you'll be sure I come back, right? And she goes, no, 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 whatever, just go. Like, she was almost disgusted by me at this point. Just go, go. So I left. And uh, I went in, saw Caroline race, and true, she raced at uh, 4.30, and I think her next race was like eight o'clock. So Joan and I are like, well, we're gonna be out of here for a couple hours. So we go to leave, and I said to her, give me my five bucks. We walk back up to the woman at the gate. I walk in, she's got a little booth, and I go, and I put my five bucks down. I said, hey, here's that five bucks I owe you. And she looks at me, she's like, what? And I'm like, remember you let me come in a few minutes ago, uh, and you, I told you I'd come back and pay you the five bucks. Her jaw almost hit the floor. She goes, you're kidding me, right? I said, no, I told you I'd pay you the five bucks. I, I'm bringing it back. She goes, I, I can't, you, she goes, which, see, I know this isn't true because I just had all of these debates in my mind. She goes, you're a really good person. <laughs> and I'm going, not really. Um, so uh, she said, I would have totally blown me off. And why do I tell you all that? This woman was blown away 
by the fact that somebody's integrity was worth more than five bucks. She couldn't believe it. And so for Daniel, put in a similar situation, here's what happens. He, he goes to the king's official, Ashpenaz, and he asks him, he doesn't go and tell him, you pagan, you know, whatever's, and the Lord my God will... That's not what he does. He goes because he understands the situation. He understands that they're likely just following their cultural norms. They're not followers of the one true God. And so he goes to him and he asks permission. He says, look, would, would it be okay if my friends and I didn't eat the king's diet? And here you see one thing I think we all need to look for and trust when, you come, when it comes to drawing lines in our lives and taking a stand, maybe looking a little bit unusual. Here's the next line, and you need to look for it when you decide that you're going to take a stand. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now, God, in other words, God was at work waiting for Daniel's convictions to meet him. My guess is, and we'll see it in a second, that Daniel's trust level in God was so high, when he went into this, he expects God to be at work. And maybe, when it comes to drawing some lines, you and I should start to expect that God may be at work too, might meet us there at the point of our convictions. Maybe instead of worrying so much about the cost of our convictions, how we might look, what people might think, how many people might say, what we might suffer, what we might miss out on, Maybe instead, what if we started to hold to some convictions and say, yeah, but I think God might meet me there. What if I honored God here and now? What if I lived out my convictions on God's behalf? Because Daniel's decision to draw a line, to stick with his convictions, it winds up being the defining moment in his life. This is why we're talking about him thousands of years later. We don't know anybody else that got marched into that city other than these four guys because of the power of their convictions. In a moment of temptation, he stopped and God met him there. God used this decision to change and to direct the rest of his life. Part of the power of personal convictions is that God uses them to direct you towards his purposes. So many of us are looking for purpose for our lives and what God wants us to do with our lives, but because we haven't made up our minds about anything, because we just float along, float along, float along morally, ethically, spiritually, financially, we get pushed and pushed and pushed, and we wind up missing out on God, what, what God had for our lives. So God's at work, and he changes Ashpenaz's heart, and while he wants to help Daniel, he goes, look, guys, I can't do that. Because remember, you're here because you're strong and good-looking. And if I don't have you eating all of this good food, you're going to get skinny and scrawny. He goes, the king's going to notice. He actually says, the king will have my head. And so, so Daniel and, and his boys come up with a plan because they trust. They said, look, let's cut a deal. Give us 10 days. Let, let, us, just, let us just eat our food. Let us eat, we'll eat vegetables. Just 10 days, and you come back and check on us. And if we're skinny, we'll agree with you. But, but let's see what God does. And many of you know the story. They come back. They look as good or better than all of the men who have been eating the king's diet. And here's how the story ends. To these four young men, God gave knowledge. This is after, after this. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This is all a result of standing up to his convictions. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Hanani, I like how they go back to their Hebrew names here. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. 
What does God do with their convictions? He uses them to influence the Babylonian culture and not the other way around. Their convictions lead to purpose and cause and influence and power. In fact, the book of Daniel is one of the shorter books in the Bible. You can read it in 20 minutes. There are three of these stories right in a row. God is trying to say to his people in an influential chapter in the scriptures, you've got to pick a place to stand. You've got to draw a line somewhere or you're going to be like everybody else and no one will know who I am. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dural in the province of Babylon. Here's what's happening. They're conquering all of these cultures. They're bringing them all, the best, the brightest. They're bringing them all into Babylon. But the problem is they all have their own gods. They all worship differently. So Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'll set up one form of worship. And he builds um, this, this gold god. And he says that multiple times a day, the band will play, and everybody drops. See, I don't care what god you worship, but when the band plays, you can get on your knees and you worship uh, this god. And the band played. And everybody in Babylon worshipped that God except for four people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so when they're confronted on this, here was their reply. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves, because I think their underlying assumption was that God, this trust level of God, God will. We don't need to offend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the burning furnace... Then God, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. See, the bigger your trust factor, the better your convictions are going to be. you got low convictions, it's likely coming from a low trust factor. Our God is able to deliver us from it, and he'll deliver us from your majesty's hand. But now catch this, because this is a huge point. You're not going to find this from a lot of religious broadcasting, but you need to understand this. Here's what they go on. They go, but even, even if he does not work, we want you to know, Your Majesty, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. In other words, we don't just serve God if or when he comes through for us, if and when it might cost us. If having convictions costs us something, then so be it. Even if God doesn't come through for us, my conviction holds. Because it's not all gray. Even if I give money but I don't get the promotion. Even if I go on the missions trip, but I don't get extra vacation time. Even if I stay home from spring break and I never meet the guy, it still doesn't matter. I trust God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude changed towards them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the burning flames. His attitude changed towards them. Many of you have experienced that when you have tried to stand up with some conviction. Maybe you know this story too. Maybe drawing a line, saying no, holding to a conviction, not going alone, staying home, not cutting the corner. Maybe you felt an attitude change from a partner, a boss, a friend. Maybe it cost you something, a seat at the lunch table. A an office in the corner, a relationship you had hopes for. Because here's the story, and the Bible doesn't shy away from this. The story of Daniel is not, does not shy away from it. Convictions come with a cost. Now, if, you were, if I were writing this story, here's what I would have said. I would have said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was so blown away by their faith that he changed his mind and gave them all even better wine. But that's not what happened. They get tossed into the furnace. 
And it was in that furnace where God showed up. King Nebuchadnezzar yells to them, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? And they said, yeah, we put three in there. And then he leaped to his feet in amazement and he said, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Most theologians concur that it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. See, I, I love when God shows up pre-furnace, right? Like, if you think this through, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they, wanted, they wanted to be saved from the furnace, not in the furnace. They hope to be delivered from God uh, before the furnace, not in the furnace. Sometimes God delivers people from the furnace. He did in chapter 1. And sometimes God delivers people in the furnace. Because the convictions where full devotion can lead you, those places are scary and dangerous and painful. And maybe in the end, it's just where Jesus turns out to be. See, with or without the fire, people of conviction, people willing to stand out, people willing to reflect to the world what it looks like when God rules over a person, every time we do this, these convictions have a result. You saw it in chapter 1, here it is in chapter 3. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed, and the robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. I just love that because, I don't know, I'm cheap, so uh, date nights at the Eisman house, I invite Joan out to a fire in the fire pit in the backyard, um, and usually with wood that I find in the backyard. And uh, there's something common about the wood I find in the backyard when it burns. Has anybody had this experience? It smells like terrible. And so, um, you know, after you sit in the, the smoke of it for a while, you don't really notice it anymore. But when I come in the house, invariably Caroline goes, you stink. Um, and so I just love the concept. They came out of the fire, and they didn't smell like smoke, like compromise, like Babylonians. They still smelt like the children of God. You see, it happened one last time. I don't have time to go into all the details, but you, you've heard of Daniel and the lion's den story. It's just the third retelling of the same thing. Daniel was told to stop praying to his God, but Daniel's couldn't do it, and he didn't make a big scene for himself. He just minded his own business and kept praying, but eventually the king was trapped into doing the same thing to Daniel, and so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel to throw him into the lion's den, and the king, who actually had a soft spot for Daniel and believed in his God, said, may your God, whom you serve continually, there is the trust factor, may he rescue you. And so after a night of restless sleep, the king shows back up in the morning, and when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue from the lions? My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. And gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lions. And when Daniel was lifted from the dead, no wound was found on him. He didn't smell. Because he had trusted in God. And, and, and the same result, you see it here. I didn't read it to you in the, in the second story, but it's almost the exact same result. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. See, grace hadn't really taken hold yet as followers of Christ and as a follower of God in, in the king's heart. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth, 
may you prosper greatly, because I've issued a decree that in every part of the kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom won't be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues, he saves, performs signs and wonders in the heavens and, and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions then, so Daniel prospered. Have you made up your mind about anything? It's the same story over and over and over, and this is why it's such an influential couple of chapters. How, how do people who want to follow God thrive in Babylon? They make up their mind. They have conviction. Now, this might seem a little old-fashioned to you. And in fact, I know it is old-fashioned. Convictions, for the most part, have gone by the, the wayside in our culture. Things that we were once certain about, we're now fairly ambiguous about. And you and I feel this. You and I were built for certainty. So if, when I study things, I start looking into them, right? And I'm like, well, this is really interesting, the power of convictions. I see it in Daniel's life, so I started Googling it. There's a ton of psychological studies out there. I can't share them all with you, but I'll just give you two things. Number one, your brain was built for certainty. And so when you're certain about certain things, it provides a standard. And when, when things brush up against your certainty, um, chemicals are released in your brain that give you a sense of calm and peace and joy. The converse, when everything's ambiguous and gray and uncertainty abounds, anxiety goes through the roof. So now researchers, secular, secular researchers, are discovering these, the power of personal convictions. I think one of the reasons our kids are struggling with such anxiety is that their generation, and ours because we led them this way, have given up on the power of conviction. We've let so many of our convictions go, and we've passed on so few. One study, again, secular study, this week looked at the power of convictions in people's lives. Here was what they found. These results over all this study suggest religious convictions provide a framework for understanding and acting within one's environment, Babylon, thereby acting as a buffer against anxiety and minimizing the experience of error. Gee, imagine that. If we would live a little bit more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we would draw some lines, if we'd make some absolutes, maybe we'd stop making a mess of our lives, screwing up, falling into error. Maybe we could lose some of the anxiety and find some peace. The psalmist figured it out a long time ago when he said, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. So what have you made your mind up about? Here's what I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to encourage you to go home and make up a little action plan about it. Uh, Emmett Smith, the old cowboy running back, had a good line. I tell it to my kids. Uh, he, he wrote, um, goals are meaningless. Goals are nothing until you write them down. What have you made your mind up about? Did you write it anywhere? Do you, or, or are you just going to figure it out? I'll figure it out when the time comes. You know, I'll figure it out. Like, you know, I'll, I'll you know. I mean, I might go down to the hotel bar. I bet nothing's going to happen. I'll, okay, well, I might, you know, I might buy her a drink. Well, where, where's the line? Like, you're just going to figure it out on the way? I've done that a few times. And not in the hotel bar, lest you worry. But <laughs> trying to save my job up here. Less, <laughs> and my marriage. <laughs> Figuring out on the way is a really bad plan. 
I don't have time to get into a lot of things on convictions, but let me give you this about convictions. Draw some up, write down a few of them. Here's the deal about convictions. You have to understand them, internalize them from the positive side and not the negative, because when you come up with negative uh, convictions, you become a jerk. Just putting it out there. You want positive convictions. I believe this. Right? So, so if you think about um, Daniel, right? He doesn't go out in the streets and protest about what pagans they are. He goes and says, hey, would you mind if I just tried because this is my faith? So I'll give you a couple of things to consider. The band can come up. Before, this makes no sense unless you are convicted of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Be convicted that Jesus lived and died and rose again. I gave you all the reasons for that a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday. Go back and look at it. Get yourself convicted and convinced that he is who he said he is, that you're loved, valued, saved, you're going to live forever, and you can trust what he says. Then start to get some convictions. I'm convicted that God so loved the world that he gave his only son... And so maybe I should love the world too. Maybe I should care about somebody else other than me. Maybe the least of these should matter in my house. Draw some lines. Write them out. Share them with your spouse. I am convicted that everything I have is on loan. It's not mine. It's all God's. And how I steward it in this world, especially if I were to steward it unusually, might reflect the image and glory and care and love of God. Draw some financial lines for yourself. I'm convicted that my body is not my own. It's been bought with a price, and therefore I must honor God with my body. You've got to figure this out before you wind up in, in the, the hotel bar or in the back seat of the car. What are you convicted of there? Draw some lines. Write them down. Share them with somebody. I, I, I thought about this one today. When Joan and I got married, we were both convicted that matter, marriage matters because it reflects the love that God has for his people. See, people should be able to look at a husband and wife and go, man, look at their relationship. They're followers of that God, and, and that's how God loves his people. See, when we got married, you know what we were convicted of? That we weren't going to get divorced. That's a good conviction, but it doesn't really say anything about staying in love. Maybe we need to rethink our convictions and start putting them on the positive instead of the negative. I am convicted that my spouse has been a gift from God and I'm to, I'm to figure out a way to make this marriage right and work and good so that when people look at it, they go, look at the way they love one another. I'm convinced my children are a gift from the Lord. I've got to prioritize them uh, over a lot, over money and power and success and position and career and prestige. I know you know it. I know you believe it. See, here's the thing about beliefs. I believe George Washington lived, but it has no impact on the way I live my life. I believe Jesus Christ lived, dies, died, and was resurrected, and so it has to have some impact on how I live my life, how I raise my kids. Again, without relationships, convictions can slip into, slip into commandments and legalism. So, so be convicted that God loves you so deeplessly and recklessly that you prioritize your relationship with him. Draw some lines. Get up a few minutes earlier. Don't miss church when it rains. Great job today, people. Way to go. But it matters. You know, I have people come up to me every once in a while. They're like, oh, you know, uh, we're, losing, we're losing our kid. They're not following God. And I'm like, you, you come to church, you know, four times a year. Right? Your kids are... Kids are looking for the power of convictions in their parents' lives. 
Get in a small group. Serve somewhere. I just gave you an opportunity this morning. The world today, just like in Daniel's day, is looking for some certainty. Your children are looking for it. They need parents. The world needs leaders of conviction. Draw the lines, write them out, share them with someone before it's too late. And God will meet you there. There will be a cost But don't forget the but God factor. Trust him that he might be in the fire, but you'll emerge. You'll smell good. And your kids and your boss and your friends and our towns might begin to see just a little bit what it looks like when someone honors God with convictions. (music) 